John Montgomery, one of the co-founders of FX Guide, and I'm really honored to be introducing this, our 200th episode of the VFX show. The thing I like about the show is it's a bit different from the other podcasts we have on FX Guide. Those podcasts and articles even truly focus on the artistry and the craft, concentrating on the artists and the researchers and the people creating the great imagery that we see on screen. Whereas with the VFX show, it's kind of a chance for those of us in the industry and people we respect to kind of share their opinion on the work that's being done. And it kind of helps those discussions kind of help me actually kind of rekindle my love and remind me of why I got into the industry and being a visual effects artist. I mean, whether it's the great work in the original Star Wars or Tron or even non-visual effects films, great ones like Scott Pilgrim, things like that, really enjoy hearing what the guys have to say in each and every episode of the VFX show. Now, behind the scenes of the VFX show, there are lots of people working on it in order to get it done. First and foremost, of course, Mike, our host and de facto producer. Uh, but, but we also have people like Ian Fails and Jimmy Shen in Sydney, David Hamner in Atlanta, who does all the editing and processing for the show, and of course, Todd Schulten, who helps us out with the show notes, some online producing, and he's actually the guy who posts it on the site and gets it ready for all of you to listen. And I would be remiss not to mention that this show actually began at the Pixel Core back in 2006, and Todd's actually been involved with that back at the Pixel Core. Mike first appeared as a guest on the show, I think, for episode number five, and has been a regular fixture on the show since then. Uh, I moved over to Effects Guide uh, at the start of 2010 with episode 92, and it became what it is now, and has actually seen a tremendous increase in popularity over the years to which it become one of our most popular podcasts on the site. So again, thanks everyone for all the incredibly hard work on the show over the years. It's been such a fun ride. Now, before we get to the actual show this week, I just want to give a shout out about our new term over at fxphd.com that we just announced on the 1st of July. That's our online training site for visual effects. We've got a fantastic lineup of courses, including a killer new virtual reality course that builds on the course last term. We've got Scott Squires and VFX supervisor Alex Henning working out on that. Uh, we've got uh, tremendous compositing and visual effects-based courses, uh, both digital map painting as well as a tornado project with the guys, a crew from Digital or Double Negative in London. A lot of great 3D courses, as well as courses focused on commercials, such as previews, Flame Graphics Design, as well as an introductory course being taught by our own Jeff User. So be sure to check that out over at fxphd.com slash courses to find out more information. We hope you join and find out why so many people join FXPHD term after term after term after term. We really have a great uh, number of repeat users who love FXPHD, so hope you join them. All right, so for this show... It's a bit different from many of our VFX shows. They normally concentrate on a single film and talk about that film. But what this one is doing is actually using the recent Terminator film as a starting off point to talk about digital characters, and more specifically, digital human characters, and talk about where we are in the state of the art of that craft. So let's go ahead and cross to that now. These guys are talking about it. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. Let's go ahead and join Mike, Matt, and Ty Rubin. Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. This is our 200th episode of the VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and I'm joined by uh, two good uh, friends on the line, starting with uh, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am great. Really excited for the bicentennial show of the VFX show. And also by Ty Rubin. How are you, Ty? I'm doing very well, thank you. So um, it has been said, as part of the ongoing evolution of the show, that I don't uh, uh, quite introduce you guys enough. So uh, can I take the liberty of uh, 
of asking you guys to give me uh, the quick rundown for those that don't know uh, where you guys are coming from and where you are currently at, just to, to set up the show this week, uh, to introduce yourselves. So, Matt, do you want to start? It's pretty easy. Yeah, sure. I, I uh, Let's see. I'm, a, I guess, a almost 20-year veteran of the visual effects business. Started, I started my career at um, Industrial Light and Magic, where uh, I met uh, our other co-host um, many, many years ago. I was there for almost a decade, I think, and then I've been kind of everywhere. I was at ESC Entertainment uh, on the Matrix sequels, Tippett Studio, uh, MPC in Vancouver, Weta Digital on King Kong, and um, I am now... Uh, uh, living in Richmond, Virginia, where I'm a tenured associate professor uh, in the Department of Communication Arts at Virginia Commonwealth University's School of the Arts. And that's more than enough qualifications to discuss uh, <laughs> this week's show. Ty? Well, I can start with the end in the beginning. I, I also am uh, on the faculty at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, actually, that position was first brought to my attention by uh, Matt Wallen on the other side there. But I... Uh, I began my career at Industrial Light and Magic also, arriving there in 1989 when everything was still pretty much done with models and miniature motion control. So I got to see all the stuff I'd read about <clears throat> you know, with the Star Wars films. I got to see it all firsthand. And then I was the visual effects art director for Jurassic Park and so helped kind of bring the visual, uh, the digital um, effects pipeline up to speed in, at, at ILM. And um, left there in 95 to become a, a, an independent uh, conceptual designer and have worked independently ever since. Um, worked with Guillermo del Toro numerous times on the Hellboy pictures and um, uh, started out with him on Mimic and Pacific Rim most recently. And uh, I was the vehicle designer for Avatar, uh, Jim Cameron's movie. I did three years on that picture. and. Uh, most recently uh, have begun working with uh, Neil Blumkamp, both on uh, Elysium and uh, uh, Chappie. So I'm teaching and working from uh, here in Richmond remotely, and it's uh, very, uh, a nice, exciting period in my life. I feel pretty awesome all the way around. Well, again, somewhat qualified to discuss our topics, but, uh, you know, what can we do? Hey, uh, no, this is spectacularly good to have both of you on. And of course, uh, I, I know you guys well and respect your opinions enormously. But uh, for those that are newer to the show, it, it is uh, a good idea to occasionally uh, run down your uh, your background so they can people understand where you're coming from. Especially this week as we're discussing not so much exactly one film as we've done almost uh, every week uh, since we started. But in fact, discussing uh, in the context, I guess almost in the shadow of Terminator Genesis, the idea of the uh, fully digital character. Now, I want to specify that uh, we're going to narrow the beam down to the sort of characters that we're referring to in Terminator Genesis, which is to say a human character. Um, it doesn't have to be exactly um, a clone of an actual actor, but we want to sort of focus in on that area because, of course, digital characters could go heavily into uh, Gollum, into um, Harry Potter characters that are more mythical, uh, and even into uh, quadrupeds and stuff. And that's a whole separate show that would go on for forever and as of course you know here on the show we like to drill down on visual effects and so to do that we're going to limit ourselves more to um to uh to people and uh and to that end um i think terminator is a good place to start because uh the the film itself has an arnold schwarzenegger um from an era when we knew arnold schwarzenegger pretty well the earlier terminator films um although his terminator character does change a bit uh between the early films it's it's uh, meant to be an ageless character, though in this 
version of the film they come up with a really good reason why he's aging. Um, but nevertheless, we get to see a, a fully digital version uh, of a character we know really well and right alongside uh, the real version, albeit uh, considerably older. So I guess right out of the gate, let's just place this in perspective. Do we think that um, everybody's comfortable with the concept of the uncanny valley or do you think we should uh, expand upon that, Matt? Uh, I mean... I think most people are probably pretty familiar with it, but I mean, to just expand on it briefly in layman's terms, I suppose the, uh, you know, the uncanny Valley is kind of that, um, it's a subtle thing, but, uh, I think any viewer of, uh, cinema or of certainly of, of digital effects of digital humans, any viewer, um, who's accustomed to seeing real people, uh, when seeing a digital human, there is this ephemeral, subtle, uh, quality of, um, you know, small muscle movements, subsurface, uh, scattering, small imperfections in the skin, wrinkles, um, very small, uh, uh, muscle movements, eye movements that are not always readily visible or hadn't been always ready, readily visible in digital characters for a long time. And it created this kind of what we call the uncanny Valley, this sense of something, not quite being right that you couldn't necessarily put your finger on specifically, but it made characters look um, frighteningly non-human. Yeah, Ty, the way I explain it to people is that we love Tom Hanks as uh, Woody because he's a cartoon and a caricature. And uh, we, of course, absolutely adore Tom Hanks as an actor because he's one of you know Hollywood's uh, most successful actors. But when we have Tom Hanks as the conductor on Polar Express, we kind of go, ugh, he's kind of freaky. And uh, so the continuum goes, uh, like it basically goes up and down. And this dip is quite uncharacteristic of what happens in other media. So, for example, in audio, you don't say, oh, somebody's voice sounds pretty bad. Oh, it sounds a bit better. Oh, no, it sounds better, but ghastly. Oh, no, it sounds good again. <laughs> um, and so... <laughs> So we have this thing, and, and Ty, I'm sure you'd agree with me that uh, just from a sort of personal observation, this is very much a result of sort of hard wiring in the brain. This isn't, you know, we don't look at faces the way we look at laptops. We look at faces with sort of years of centuries, if not millennium, of, of uh, evolution to kind of uh, help us understand and process the subtlety of what's going on. Yeah, that's exactly correct. I mean, I think that... Um from everything I've read, the, the face is one of the first things that, you know, your brain looks for, you know, it looks for eyes, it looks for, you know, the face of the parents or the mother. And uh, I think that as we get older and we start to become, um, you know, really adept at seeing the world and really adept at, you know, assimilating things that we distance ourselves from the fine uh, detail, the fine level of understanding we actually have uh, for recognition of, of, you know, the human anatomy and the human face. The, the idea that, um, you know, it, that we do it so unconsciously that, that we really don't think about the process is the interesting piece because many of us who see that uncanny effect it's really very difficult to say precisely what it is that's bothering us. But once we're confronted with it, it's kind of impossible to ignore. So your point is correct. It's like suddenly you're, you know, it makes you feel very um, uncomfortable on a, on a very basic interior level, you know, kind of a, almost on a, like a subconscious level, but, but something is wrong and you know it's wrong and it, it throws you out of the moment. It throws you out of the narrative and it, um, you know, it keeps you kind of, um, you know, I always kind of associated to something just being incorrect in perspective, for example. It just looks wrong and you can't tell why, um, but you know that it's inaccurate in some way. 
Well, as you guys know, I'm obviously FX Guide and FX PhD is my day job, but uh, I'm doing my PhD part-time in this area of digital faces. So obviously I've done a a lot of uh, work in this, and I'm also uh, a member of the Digital Human League. We've published about that on FX Guide, which is looking at this problem. So I wanted to see if I could just help people with a few perspectives and, and terms, because it sounds like it's a you know a problem that we've just outlined, but actually it gets more complicated. And so let me just uh, help kind of narrow the beam a bit. Firstly, this is a problem that from the outset, from the original uh, 1970s Japanese robotics paper, was said to be amplified by motion. So in other words, if you can get a still that looks pretty good, um, and, and Lord knows there are some great digital artists out there that have managed to get some good 3D stills happening, uh, the second it starts moving, it amplifies. So if it's a cartoon, you like it more, and if it's uh, in the Uncanny Valley, you hate it more. Actually, the, the original term was affinity. You have an affinity with it, or you have a lack of affinity with the uh, thing that you're looking at. So that's one thing. The second thing is in popular culture... People are currently using the term uncanny valley to say, I can't recognize that that was digital. But in fact, that isn't what the term sort of specifically means. There's a concept of lack of affinity. It's possible that you can still know it's digital, but actually find it appealing. So I would offer here the example of, um, uh, you know, a poor elf that gets killed at the end, a uh, uh, house elf at the end of Harry Potter, in that I know he's digital, but uh, poor Dobby, you know, breaks my heart. So it's not that I find the character um, to be photorealistic to the point that I think he's real. It's the point that I don't find him upsetting, off-putting, or just um, I have a lack of affinity. And so if we move that now to, to talking about humans, it would be possible that I know that that's a digital version of something, but I still find it looks great. Um, of course, in the feature film industry, what we've done is we've used the term as shorthand for I can't tell it was fake which is a sort of a slightly different thing if you think about it because it's possible to have something that looks good uh, in the rest of visual effects that we kind of conceptually know it to be fake um, but we still find it to be a you know damn good thing to, to kind of look at. And I think that's a kind of a subtle difference. And the, second, the third thing so I want to mention is that there's <clears throat> a huge difference between being able to produce a digital human that you say looks great and a digital human that looks great and looks exactly like someone I know really well. So, for example, if I was to produce a character in a film um, that I'd never seen before, it's a digital character who's, um, you know, an actor that uh, isn't well known and uh, is just doubling for somebody, that's one problem. Having us recreate Arnold Schwarzenegger when we think we know what Arnold Schwarzenegger looked like and at that point in his life we knew what he looked like, that's a whole different thing. So the, the worst case example of this would be uh, Paul Walker in Fast and Furious 7. So even though the publicity machine of the film hasn't allowed them to do stories on it, it's now widely known throughout the industry that uh, Paul Walker was, in fact, digitally produced in several scenes in Fast and Furious. And the work was done, though they haven't spoken about it, uh, by Weta Digital. Now, Weta's problem is the worst of all cases because we need to have it not only be uh, aesthetically pleasing, but not know that it's digital per se, and we have to have it uh, look like Paul Walker when we know what Paul Walker looks like. And guess what? Paul Walker's in the scene either side of the shots that we're talking about. Um, so even worse than Terminator Genesis, I think you'd agree, Matt, that, that doing a digital Paul Walker is kind of about the hardest one we've, we've kind of yet sort of seen on screen. Well, I think when you're, yeah, especially when you're dealing with something uh, that, you know, there's a lot of, I think, probably sensitive um uh, concerns around, you know, an, an actor who uh, has, um, you know, passed away, and they're and you're looking to continue uh, their role if they're sort of midstream in the production of a film. Now, I didn't, I didn't see um, 
Furious Seven, so I haven't seen the uh, the actual work that was done um, for that character in that film. I, I do understand though too that I think there are some shots that are being done or have already been done in one of the uh, Hunger Games movies too, a Philip yep, Seymour the, Hoffman, the, if I'm not yep. mistaken. The Last Hunger Game. For, so Mocking Jay's Part Two. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think it it presents an interesting. Uh, dilemma especially if it's a famous actor like paul walker or like philip seymour hoffman someone that people are really familiar with and who um are really uh, in the public eye and and when uh you know they meet uh, when they when they pass on and and that's become something that's sort of a story in the popular press and everybody knows that they're gone then you know the the bar is raised uh, exponentially too in terms of being able to um, create a sense of uh, realism in the in the digital recreation of that um, likeness of that person. Ty, did you see Fast and Furious Seven? I have not. The thing about it that frustrated me, in one sense, was they wouldn't talk about it, but in another sense, it was kind of interesting because I couldn't go into the film, and I've now seen it several times for this specific reason. I couldn't go into the film saying, "Oh, I know he's digital in that scene." It was like, okay, I know he's digital in several scenes, but even uh, when I first saw it, I now know, but the first saw it, I didn't know which scenes he was digital in. And, um, and by my rough viewing of the internet, the internet doesn't know which scenes he's digital in. They got some right and some, uh, some wrong. But um, it, yeah, I mean, Philip Michael Hoffman's going to be the same thing. If they don't talk about it, when you see, if one sees Mockingjay, it'll be like, well... Is that scene uh, digital or not? Um, it's not as if, Ty, we haven't had digital doubles for a while, but mostly digital doubles are doing sort of stunty kind of work. And I guess the thing there is we just don't sort of expect a performance from them. But, but do you think we sort of have the ability to cross the Uncanny Valley or are we miles away from it? No, I mean, I, I, I think it's, a, well, judging from Terminator, the Terminator uh, Genesis, I, I think that it, it was pretty spectacular. I mean... I was ready to try to, you know, see the young Arnold and see, you know, like, can I tell, um, you know, that it's a digital um, uh, character. But if you're watching it as a viewer and you're kind of in the story and you're not looking at it with the idea of checking out the visual effects, which right now is kind of, you know, that that's kind of the thing to do. Um, I thought it was remarkably well done. The so I can imagine it'll only get better from here. And one day, in ten years or five years, even we'll be having this conversation, and we'll just not be that concerned about was it a real B fifty two flying in that scene or was it a digital B fifty two? I mean, it'll. I think it'll become that commonplace. I really see that it is a lot about. Um, awarenesses and, and technologies, both of which are growing very quickly, and, and I think a lot of the um, a lot of the um, complicated, difficult things uh, that are um, you know like motion capture or looking at different kinds of um, surface deformations and things, they're they, they're perfectly suited for being automated in some in some way or to some degree, and so I think we're past it, and I think it's. It's it's probably just going to continue to get better to a point where we don't really discuss it unless it's for a specific, uh, you know, purpose. I mean, the thing is about Terminator is, and this is the MPC guys. We've got a story about the Sony FX guide. That they said this. That it wasn't just a matter of making an artificial Arnie. It was making an artificial Arnie that was acting like a robot. <laughs> so uh, it was kind of interesting because as a robot, that's an easier bar one thinks right like you know 
but it was not a matter of removing all humanity and just making the robot because that wasn't the performance that Arnold Schwarzenegger gave. That wasn't, you know, it's to look, if you really analyze it, like a guy acting like a robot, not a full-on um, robotic uh, version. But nevertheless, I mean, it wasn't as if Arnie was doing a huge range of sort of Hamlet-level uh, emotional acting in in, uh, in either his digital form or actually for that matter his normal form but you know it was like a it was a so there's kind of i guess this thing about does he look real and does he feel real and that emotional response um uh coming from the acting which which sort of begs the question is that you know can we get animators to give an acting performance um matt do you think that we have problems there because actors make a lot of choices. Is there any reason why those animators can't make those choices in place of them? I mean, I don't, I don't think so, but I think it's, you know, it's a complex task that requires, I think more than just an individual, you know, I think it's something that requires a, a, a whole team. I mean, and if you're dealing with, you know, I'm sure in many cases, the subtle performance movement, some sort of facial capture system that's driving an underlying rig and then additional, um, animation and secondary animation on top of that, I think uh, it certainly is something that can be done and be achieved, but I think it requires, um, more often than not, I think it would require, you know, multiple eyes assessing and evaluating and, and kind of bringing um, different interpretations and different perceptions into the mix in order for it to achieve uh, a level of uh, reality that... Um, you know, would sort of pass the the smell test for the largest number of uh, viewers. Ty, have you seen Jurassic World? I have not. Because I was wondering, thinking about this, and it's a shame you haven't seen it, but I was wondering about that, whether, you know, because that was like, what, 20 years ago, right? Jurassic Park. So I'm wondering whether we're at the Jurassic Park level for digital humans. Because if you were running the clock 20 years forward using Jurassic as a previous you know case study the level of difference for me between the first film which i thought was remarkable i mean i thought you guys did a just spectacularly good job and it's just a landmark piece of cinema and a fantastic landmark piece of visual effects but if you run the clock forward to today there's no doubt that there have been improvements it's in the same uh sort of direction but you know it's like subtler and it's to a point that i just find it almost impossible to look at them as just digital um, models and if that's what we could do with those creatures in 20 years, if we could do the same thing with humans between now and, and 20 years hence, 20 years sounds like a long time, but then looking back, Jurassic doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Um, that would make it, as you say, a point where we just don't really, we know that they're digital, but we don't really um, get upset about it. Now, that still doesn't solve the problem that in the Jurassic dinosaur area, we're not trying to give me a performance that was that particular raptor's interpretation of his part in the film. <laughs> There's a uh, a great story, I think, of one uh, one of the actors from um, The Hobbit being put in a, a scanner, and they were like, so, so can you smile for the facts pose? And it was like, would you want me to smile as myself or as the character? <laughs> because, you know, from their point of view, it was a completely <laughs> different smile. Um, and I love that, and I think that's a great uh, point of view. And so if we were to advance the technology 20 years forward and say we could solve it aesthetically, um, if you like, in terms of shaders and skin and, and all that kind of stuff, it still doesn't know that we can get, you know, the same performance. So it would be easy to get me in 20 years time because I can't act now. <laughs> Whether I could get 
an actor that really, you know, I mean, we could get as good a Tom Hanks as Tom Hanks can do. Um, that's a, that's a whole different story. Um, are there any? I mean, Curious Pace of Benjamin Button is probably you know the first point where I was just so knocked on my ass over the quality of the digital humans that I was filled with hope. Was that the case for you guys? Did you find Benjamin Button to be just a real? I mean, for me, that was the Jurassic of digital humans. Yeah, I mean, I I remember it very well. I, I it's not one of my favorite Fincher films, but I definitely respect it, and I think the work is spectacular in it. Um, but it really was um, kind of shocking how good it was, you know, at that particular moment in time. I think that it, it felt to me like something had, um, you know, like there had been a major step made. And I hadn't been looking, you know, it's like one of those Rip Van Winkle effects. Yeah. Like I had looked away and then when I looked back, I said, well, when, when did they start doing this? Like, how, how did this happen? I didn't, it, it, it seemed like it kind of arrived um, in a much more sophisticated way than I was expecting. Um, and it is, it is an interesting use of that technology. I mean, to have the story really turn on an idea that took so much advantage of, you know, what, what the the tools were available what that were the tools were capable of at that point in time and i think it was i think also when, when you mentioned jurassic and i know we're not going to get into all the kinds of characters but i think both the original jurassic and i think um david fincher and the way he approached benjamin buttons is they really were designed really incredibly well to take advantage of the digital um pieces or the digital technology and digital visual effects and also to help the visual effects to to make the visual effects work more seamlessly there were there was a great integration of both um you know execution with the live action and execution with the plates and then execution of the effects and sometimes i think um as you're uh, you know well aware a lot of times effects can get put off to the last minute or maybe some mistakes were made or it wasn't ideal and then so you're doing a lot of catch-up Whereas um, um, I, when I sense, when I see films that really seem like they're, the, the effects are, the digital um, characters are working on another level, I'm assuming that that was done with a lot of care. I don't want to take anything away from the Matrix films because the Matrix, especially the sequels, were really, really significant contributions. But I didn't have the same sense of awe at the achievements of overall on the... Um, on the Matrix films, on the faces. I did on some of them. I mean, the, the Burly Punch, I think, was mm -hmm. just spectacularly good. But um, and, and there was moments of just sheer genius in the Matrix sequels uh, in particular for faces. But there were also moments where it just didn't work for me. And, and so I was in the Uncanny Valley to the point that I found that kind of off-putting. And I don't know, what do you think? You yeah, I was going to mention the Matrix too because I was I was at ESC for uh, Matrix Two and the first part of Matrix Three, and then I finished up Matrix Three at, at Tippett Studio. But I I mean I think that the um, definitely one of one of the most exciting things that I've always found working at different visual effects facilities, and you were talking about the dinosaurs, but you know to come back to the humans, um, I, I've always enjoyed uh, the opportunity. Uh, of looking at stuff sort of in its progression, you know, and I remember there were times um, early on in my career um, when ILM was working on Jumanji and you would go into where they had their, um, like a, they called it a view station, right? Where you could go in and you could view frames on a, 
on a, a frame cycler type system, um, a sort of predecessor to that. And you could um, sort of scroll, um, scrub through um, with a jog shuttle and sort of look at different frames. And there were turntables of various animals um, uh, in walk cycles and run cycles, the elephant, the zebra, uh, the rhino, et cetera. And um, I remember at the time, you know, kind of just sticking my head in there and, and uh, scrubbing through some of those shots uh, of just turntables of these characters. And they looked so real. And, uh, and it was sort of almost indistinguishable from reality because it wasn't like anything you'd seen before. And uh, at ESC, uh, we would have our dailies um, uh, in the morning. Uh, and sometimes there'd be uh, afternoonalies as well. Um, and, and you would uh, sit in the theater uh, on the... Uh, Navy base there in Alameda, and you could sit in the theater, and and they were doing some of those early tests of um, Hugo weaving, and they had captured all kinds of different uh, images of him using sort of the the U cap and the optical flow kind of technique that they were um, developing, and some of the things that you would see, I remember looking at it and thinking like, well, you know, I'm just looking at a photograph, like what what what's the big deal, you know? And then they start to sort of break it apart and pick it apart, and you realize, oh, whoa, oh wow, that's that really looks totally amazing. That's really cool. And so, you know, I think sometimes the, the seeing some of that stuff in process and then seeing the sort of finished result, even if it doesn't, as you say, Mike, in the matrix, maybe it doesn't totally achieve, uh, you know, a seamless kind of, um, you know, across the board. I think that's true. I think most people would concur. Certainly a lot of the, the big crowd scenes with the, the many, uh, agent Smiths maybe are less successful, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's just a progression all along, you know, and, you see so many different um, iterations of these digital humans. I was at uh, I was at Sony too for uh, I Am Legend, and they were doing a lot of work for the the Hemocyte characters, and um, which weren't direct actors, but it was all again about trying to um, flesh out that kind of subsurface scattering um, to get a real a realistic um, look for that character as a kind of semi translucent skin and. Um, I don't know. I just I feel like we're we're getting closer and closer to uh, a really almost seamless digital human. Where, I, like you said, in the Fast and Furious, or certainly a, a few shots, I think in the in the Terminator Genesis, there are shots where I'm just like, wow, like that that is really really solid. Like you're looking at it and you think this looks like we're we're really close. And so you, I think your your statement, you know, 20 years from now, I just I think it'll be indistinguishable. There's some really interesting um, technology uh, backstory to what's been happening with the faces that I was thinking about as you were talking then. So people who maybe uh, haven't stopped to think about it, if you if you actually trace out the way we were doing faces, we've actually had a couple of major branches. Your Matrix work, and I'm going to include the work that happened on um, Spider-Man that was very much the uh, uh, ICT um, light stage stuff came from a basis of let's film someone's faces with real cameras and then use that so that we can effectively, I'm going to super simplify things now, projection map a unified texture back onto the geometry. And so in that respect, today, sitting at my laptop, I can get a really good still of me because I can scan my head with a by the process of using um, uh, like a photo scan type thing and... and um, put together a ton of stills and they all stitch together and produce a geometry in my face and then we put the combined texture map of those tons of stills back onto the top of the geometry and whatever I'm missing in fine detail geometry is made up for in the absolutely photorealistic um, stills that were sort of placed on top of that geo. That's that that 
method works exceptionally well um, because it's effectively photography onto geometry. And so the characteristics that you captured in the photography totally work. And if you do that uh, along those lines that, um, that you guys did on the Matrix, you get these spectacularly good shots. It's just that there's a limit to how far you can take that because it's reliant on the geometry and the photography and yeah, the lighting. Yeah, they're shot the specific, yeah. Yeah, whereas there's this second branch which is saying, okay, let's just get the geometry nailed and we're discovering that you have to get that nailed to an extraordinary level. And if we get that working and the subsurface working and stuff, then we can produce a digital face uh, in any lighting environment. Now, in the case of Benjamin Button they were doing a digital face, but they actually got a head, like a maquette, and stuck it in a light stage, and they lit it with um, every permutation of lighting that's possible. And then they could put the maquette lit to the HDR of the captured scene that they were putting it into next to the digital version and say, okay, well, this is what the maquette says would be photographically what would happen if, if we had it in this location, let's look at our digital version and see how the two uh, marry up. And they could try and tweak their digital version to come in line with the maquette. Now, it would have been great if the maquette had actually been an old version of the actor. Um, but, of course, the old version of the actor didn't exist uh, because, you know, obviously uh, that was the whole point of doing it and Brad Pitt wasn't there. Now, Brad Pitt was scanned, but I'm talking about the aged version of Brad Pitt now. So, so that's, that's the sort of branching point. And then if you go forward to today... You're saying uh, with the latest kind of research, okay, well, we're going to get really, really great subsurface scattering. Whereas in the earlier versions, you were effectively photographically capturing the subsurface because when you took the photo, the skin naturally did the diffuse subsurface scattering. So you got that in the picture. Now we're sort of getting the the um, albedo version. The, we're lighting it with the spec and the, getting the diffuse and stuff. And so we have to reintroduce all of that properly with uh, with mathematical models, and so the, I think to a certain extent there was an initial run of stuff that was so strong, and then we had a little bit of a step sideways as we went into the sort of fully CG version. But if we can master the fully CG version, then we can kind of do anything. I mean, <clears throat> the problem with Arnold Schwarzenegger is that um, the the young version they don't have the today digital scans of what his skin was like back then. They had a mask like a a um, what do you call it a uh, plaster kind of thing, but mm -hmm. that doesn't give you enough. Yeah, it doesn't give you enough fine detail for what they needed, but it gave you the proportions and the physical shape of his face and stuff. But it didn't give you the fine detail, and the fine detail that people are going to today is like 16K resolution on the um, on the skin, and and we know this, and this is getting back to the Matrix. We know this from the original work on the Matrix, where the surface normals, and and this is coming from a interview I did with Kim Libreri, because I'm telling you how to suck eggs here, Matt, because you were there. But um, the surface normals get simplified as the character moves away from camera. And so their skin, the spec on their skin in particular, starts to look like plastic simply because the algorithms for a small version of Hugo Weaving uh, is, is simplifying its textures and its surface normals down to a point where it's sort of averaged to look like it just had a very shiny surface. And so... Um, you guys were struggling with the characters further away from camera more than you were closer to camera. And that, that problem is solved if you're doing the photographic version to a certain extent because the photography solves that. Yeah. Um, but the uh, spec highlight, to get it right in the modeled 3D version, 
needs to have vast microgeometry to break up those specs, even when the character moves away from camera so that it doesn't average down to kind of a more of a plasticky sheen. Um, but it does feel like we're now sort of getting to a point that you can get close to getting the photographic version on the still, the still projected photo version to look the same as the, uh, as the 3D version. So you must have seen stills around the net and people that have posted that are pretty good of digital faces. I mean, I've certainly seen quite a few really good artists doing doing sort of still projects that look pretty good. Yeah. In fact, I often don't even, I think it's sort of, the, it gets back to the point of what, what the future might look like. I, I don't even sometimes concern myself as to whether they're, what they are, if they're doing, if they're serving another purpose, like in the context of the conceptual design, for example, if somebody's using a, you know, like a poser model and they've tweaked it and made it look a certain way so that they can then overpaint on it or do something like that, it's, it, it's no longer an issue. I mean, no one would stop a meeting, for example, and say, hey, is this a digital, you know, base model that you're using instead of a real actress? So we've become very used to the idea of stills being complete synthetic manipulations across the boards. So, you know, that's why I think we have to be cautious collectively when we start to judge anything online, um, that it is super, you know, easy to manipulate and do it very effectively. Yeah, you can, the overpaint... At what point? It's sort of like a matte painting, right? Like it's uh, it's not cheating to overpaint on a matte painting, um, and then reproject that back over the geometry and stuff. It's just if it works, it works. But you can't really overpaint on the animation. You can't deal with that um, because you know things just don't don't move the way they are. And also, I think we mentioned it, but I think it's worth repeating. It's very much the case, Matt, that we are super sensitive to the smallest of smallest kind of things in human faces. I mean, astonishingly thus. I know if my wife raises an eyebrow, just even a fraction, I just totally stop what I'm doing and pay attention because I'm in serious shit. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think, you know, there are many uh, instances in, you know, in, in this, in the Terminator Genesis of the young Schwarzenegger, uh, there are, I, I had the, I, I, just to talk about that example, I guess I, I had the good fortune of noticing a couple days before uh, <laughs> I went and saw the film, uh, I saw that the original Terminator was on uh, Netflix here in the US, so I could stream it, and I hadn't seen it in years, and so I actually uh, had an afternoon where it was raining here, and I couldn't go... Uh, you know, play outside or go to the pool or whatever I was going to do that day. So I thought, oh, I'll check out the uh, the original Terminator and before going to see the new one. Haven't seen it in years, and uh, it was. I'm so glad that 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 I did because I don't know that I I hadn't seen it that many times. I don't know that I would have remembered it that well, but I was able to really sort of visually compare uh, those key scenes, the particular the opening scene at the Griffith Observatory, uh, and I thought the first initial shots of the fully digital young Schwarzenegger were just breathtakingly amazing. I thought they were great. They looked so good. There were a few, uh, you know, subtleties here and there that for me, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess you can kind of tell he's digital. But he, even in the original movie, he kind of looks sort of rubbery, you know, it's like a different, <laughs> it's like a different kind of Schwarzenegger, right? He's sort of, there's the old joke, right? He's like a, he looks like a condom stuffed with walnuts or something. I don't know that, that sort of bulging <laughs> physique. That and, was um, a, uh, a quote from an Australian journalist. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I mean, but there were moments in that that I thought were just that were so incredible. And he, the only thing I, I remember thinking was I thought, oh, it's, it's too bad they couldn't have done a digital recreation of a young Bill Paxton uh, in, as one of the punkers uh, holding the radio or whatever. But uh, but it was it was really cool. And, and I feel like it's it adds so much, uh, you know, to I mean, essentially, I think you know, that whole franchise is kind of it's sort of a B movie franchise that you know is injected with a lot of money in the the following sequels uh which makes them really fun effects movies but so i mean i don't i don't know that i take the terminator franchise that seriously as a as a fan but they sure are a lot of fun and i thought that the uh that that execution and that opening scene was so strong the only subtle things that sort of jumped out to me had very little to do with the skin or the face facial performance i did think it was almost, he was almost too stiff in some ways at times around the eyes, but it's sort of that difficult balance of he's a, you know, an actor who's somewhat robotic in general playing a robot. So it's kind of a complex performance to try to attain. Um, and then the only other thing I noticed was that there were some small uh, wisps of hair uh, on his uh, head, like sort of in front of his forehead that uh, moved subtly in the close-ups um, and it just, it looked almost like, uh, it almost looks self-con like self-conscious hair animation. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like the direction of the hair animation. Yeah. It was just, it was almost like they were like, we've got to add something. How about, why don't we move a couple of those hairs or somebody did that. There, and there are 13 different types of hair on Schwarzenegger, <laughs> like from, uh, eyebrows to hair, um, to different things to stubble. Interestingly, the peach fuzz on the yeah, skin. that's the skin hair. That was the other thing I was going to talk about too that I thought was just so really, really successful and added so much when he's backlit in that opening scene. Yeah, actually, it's interesting, you know, that peach fuzz can actually screw up scanners um, because uh, it sort of causes scanners to not necessarily work. So you've got some women, uh, some uh, ethnic groups that have, you know, more sort of that, what I'm going to call peach fuzz, uh, subtle um, skin hair and uh, and it really screws stuff up but it actually causes a, a really interesting form of scattering as well both uh, on light coming in and coming out so it's it plays a huge role but isn't it funny how you kind of don't perceive it being there but if you get the right backlit shot you really see it and totally. um, yeah and there are actresses um, uh, I've spoken to people that you know like cinematographers and stuff who've like really gotten into trouble because they want to do this dramatic backlighting on the actress but you know you can't really say to an actress we need to shave your face but if she happens to have like a <laughs> fine wispy kind of blonde hair you don't notice it except for in the wrong backlit kind of angle and then um and then it's a problem and and even if it's um this is all of course live action and if you then go to digital not only would you see it, but also it would cause this really weird uh, extra level of scattering that uh, that uh, would be different. I don't actually think subsurface is our problem anymore. Um, these guys rendered um, him with uh, Pixar's new uh, RIS, um, you know, uh, subsurface model, mm -hmm. and did a really good job. But I don't think it's the subsurface that's the thing. I think that um, there are there are bigger issues at play. The thing is, though, that there's a lot of stuff. Um, at play on sort of how we perceive the the character motion you know we've mentioned but it's uh like for example flesh simulation so um on uh smog in the vr version that they did uh for 
GDC. I remember talking to the guys there, and they did a lot of flesh simulation for the air currents moving through the mouth and how the flesh was moving. And of course, if you've got an actor scanned sitting in a chair, that's completely different flesh simulations in terms of um, inertia and um, and ballistics and stuff than if they're jumping around uh, in a fight sequence or in a car or uh, got you know whatever. So you've got sort of not only the basic poses, but what the flesh does from your own internal bodily functions to what you're doing because of what the character is doing when it's now put into the context of the scene. And so many of these things um, add to this. I think as somebody once said, it's really easy to get into the valley. It's just really hard to get out. <laughs> um, but yeah, then we focused heavily on the subsurface because it seemed like such a big advance. And I think that was a true... Uh, thing, but I don't know. I've, I now look at the skin and feel like the skin is the problem. I feel the skin is kind of it. The eyes, however, the eyes are a are a massive deal. Something I haven't seen. I don't know if you guys have, but uh, companies like Weta, um, who obviously didn't do this, this is NPC, but companies like Weta have gone to um, spectral renderers that uh, that do um, full spectrum of light rendering as opposed to sort of more of an RGB model. And you'd expect that to make a big difference because subsurface is a um, uh, a wavelength-dependent uh, property. But I haven't actually seen any tests yet, maybe you guys have, uh, with a lot of difference between... I mean, Maxwell does it as well, um, rendering across the light spectrum uh, in um, you know much wider... Settings. But I haven't seen any differences yet published showing the difference between that RGB and that uh, with full um, color spectrum of you, so I, technically. I haven't seen anything like that, uh, at, to date at least. I, I, I always wonder, too, like... You know, how much do you retain, too, because the signal always goes back to an RGB signal in the end anyway at projection, doesn't it? I mean... Yes, though one would argue that, that uh, okay, so we take something that's being, you know, got a chromatic aberration or whatever, it's uh, or any kind of um, refraction stuff, that gets photographically reverted to an RGB at a CMOS sensor. But in a sense, it's being sampled after it exists and so it doesn't get lost I and mean, we get those properties so you get like your photography. your super whites and your sort of a, a sense of a higher dynamic uh range across the the what's represented well now of course you you'd be talking about spec right because specs is where those those highlights um that's where you're getting the the higher white values um not so much in the subsurface which tends to be a more muted um range um, I guess, I mean, this is the problem, right? Like, you, it's all—it's very, very difficult. I mean, we used to do a trick, a um, bunch of these things in, in various classes that we did at FX PhD, just to illustrate the point. But if you get a picture of a house, yeah, and you blur the um, black and white, effectively, luminance values, it just looks blurry instantly. But you can blur the bajillicans out of the chrominance, <laughs> leaving the um, luminance before anyone kind of notices. And there are companies um, that do uh, face replacements and skin work that quite often blur just the chrominance because it takes the skin to be less blotchy. And you just don't notice it. But the second you start putting a ProMist filter that blurs and effectively does stuff to the, the luminance, you notice it in a second. And so you're just much more sensitive to some things than others. You're much more sensitive to eyes and mouths than any other thing. But that being said, I don't know if you guys saw there was a picture of Paul DeBevick 
a digital version, I think it was done for the New York Times. And for those of us that know Paul, it just didn't look like Paul. It's a huge debate that went on a bunch of, bunch of people about why it didn't look like him. His eyes didn't look right or whatever it was. And I was like, yeah, it's not that for me. It looks pretty good. And then I discovered that what had happened is the guys that were doing this as, um, as a bit of a favor had only done Paul's face. And so they grabbed one of the guys in the lab's skull and put Paul's face on this guy's skull. And that was the picture that I saw. And even though there's no detail on the skull, and it was kind of a bald skull, I just it had the wrong shape of the head. Yeah. And so everybody's focused on the eyes. And the thing that was wrong most in that picture was the skull, a featureless outline profile, the silhouette, if you like. And that's when I kind of realized, well, of course, I can see my wife walking in a crowd. I know the kind of outline of her. I'm quite, I have no basis, in fact, for saying this, but I'm quite sure in my brain, I just know the outline and that's like one of the key compositing or composite bits that I use to identify a person. I mean, Ty, you must come across silhouettes as just a really important thing. This must seem like a a stupid comment to even be saying out loud. Well, is from a design standpoint, the silhouette is the key. You know, that's that's where good design comes from. So yeah, shape awareness and understanding a shape and and knowing, knowing how a shape um, reads, you know, it's, you, it sounds weird. That sounds like a weird thing to say. It's like, how does a shape read? Well, the shapes have different kinds of effect. You know, they have, they can sense, they can project strength or they can project, you know, kind of, uh, you know, light quality or, you know, they can, they can have the neutrality, they can have an aggression and there's all kinds of things. And you're exactly right. I think that, um, that again, kind of going back to what I was hinting towards in the beginning is that a lot of this kind of processing, personal awareness of others, um, is happening at a very uh, subconscious level. It's it's happening, uh, you know, very quickly on a level that we don't really keep tabs on until we're confronted with your exact story where something is wrong and then you have to go, why is it wrong? And then you have to open up these complex tools that you use all the time and don't think about and actually try to say, well, how come it is I do have these abilities or what are, what is it that I'm seeing when I'm seeing things? I mean, interestingly enough, um, visual effects, when when I was um, working on Jurassic uh, with Dennis Muir, and one of the things that I learned from Dennis is that he'd really, he'd really made um, this amazing uh, kind of catalog of his own understandings of, of the life around him. You know, so he he was looking for specific cues because he'd gone through all that effort of trying to break down how he sees or how the camera sees or how people see. Uh, I learned a very uh, a great deal from just listening to him talk about how it is that we were looking at dailies, for example. And, you know, if you go to dailies are projected you know, at 24 frames per second. And after you work in visual effects for a while, you know, you, you start to get that ability to, to pick out a single bad frame, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody who works in effects for any period of time gets that ability. And you go, oh, you know, I saw something. And then they roll back the film and put it at a slower speed. And then back then, of course, it was a garbage mat or something that was left over. But the, the eye brain, you know, tool set is pretty extraordinary and pretty facile. And I think that as the bar raises um, on, you know, these these kinds of technologies that that we're going to continue to see experts who can always pick them out, whereas the normal moviegoer, they're going to quit caring. Like I said, like they just 
it, it's not that interesting. Actually, if it's not too far afield, that's that's the only other thing about the the um, the uh, Terminator film that struck me that isn't related specifically to the characters, and that is that. When Terminator 2, when Jim was working on Terminator 2, I was at Industrial Light and Magic at that time. And Matt, you were there then too, I think. And um, those shots were so difficult and so hard and so breathtaking and original and never been seen before. And it was so extraordinary that you really took your breath away to, to witness something as though like it was the first time any human being had ever seen a chrome man you know, and um, (laughs) so much of today, like I remember the first thing I thought of when I saw the trailer for T2, even before I saw, you know, and I'd been lucky because I'd seen some of the effect shots in process, but I was like, the second this movie comes out on DVD or back then it would have been VHS, right? The second it's out, I'm going to buy it because I want (laughs) to see these 15 effect shots and we can all name them, you know, like when the the guy's hand turns into a, to the knife or when he picks up his chrome blob off the street or when he goes through the bars. I mean, you can name them because they were so unbelievable. And the one thing that kind of struck me in, um, the Genesis film was that, you know, I'm kind of become jaded. I mean, they're blowing up everything. They're shooting everything. The guys, in the first five minutes, you've got more visual effects work, high quality visual effects than in the entire Terminator 2 film, not including practicals. Um, and my brain was sort of, yeah, you know, all right, it was kind of good. You know, that was fun. All right, that was cool. And so <laughs> we've become kind of changed by all this and that's what i find interesting so i i I think that as we look at digital humans there there's going to come a point where we just go oh yeah it's that marilyn monroe digital character and you'll just say it in passing but you won't it won't be such a big deal yes and and i'm obviously an, an audience does get more educated which is why we no longer as people did in the first days of cinema run from the cinema screaming when we see a train coming (laughs) on the screen (laughs) um but yeah, it is. I do think. I, by the way, Grady, who did the uh, work on ILM's um, opening on uh, this film in terms of the uh, ICBM attacks and uh, you know the stuff in San Francisco, they did a great job. But yeah, it is a bit frightening just how much was packed in that first bit, and then you're on to the next thing, right? Um, but yes. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, just real quick on this note, like this kind of interesting uh, sideline. I don't know if. Uh, Mike, if you uh, happen to see some of what um, uh, a friend of the show, <laughs> Todd uh, Vaziri, was talking about this last over the weekend, there was a uh, a story that got picked up by a lot of different media outlets online about how uh, you know CGI is ruining movies, right? Where people were talking about all this kind of stuff, and there was this. Um, uh, one particular one that they called it the Weta effect, and they were. Yep. Uh, did you see that thing? And then I saw it going by, but I must admit I was I was dismissive of the story just from the headline. Well, right. I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, you know, I think to anybody who's ever worked in visual effects, there is uh, certainly, uh, you know, it, it's ridiculous, and it's sort of hand-picked, cherry-picked examples that sort of you know go um, on to describe you know, this, this sort of flawed thesis about, you know, CG ruining, uh, movies, but, but I think it's interesting in a way that you're, you're seeing these sort of popular press pieces that get picked up. Um, and they kind of speak a little bit to what, you know, I think in a way, a little bit of what Ty's describing too, where it's like, not, not necessarily that, 
I wouldn't say that you become necessarily jaded, but, but it's almost as if there's an expectation, right? And so that, you know, there's this kind of the idea that, you know, that there's more effects in the first five minutes of Terminator Genesis than in the, all of Terminator 2. And, and I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting um, phenomena, but I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, the visual effects uh, houses or the visual effects artists. I think it has everything to do with, uh, you know, storytelling and, and uh, the way in which um, uh, certainly a lot of the, of the business of cinema, of, you know, motion pictures uh, has become just that. It's become a business, right, much more than anything else. It's about the, you know, the horse race at the box office more than it is uh, oftentimes about quality storytelling. I don't know. It's just, it was an interesting point. It just seemed like a natural uh, connection to sort of the exchange that Todd was having, which I, he posted a thing about it on his um, website, if anybody's curious, but it's, it's pretty interesting. And I thought he made some pretty insightful uh, comments about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, yeah, we have to defend to a certain extent our, uh, our craft, but I also feel that um, over the next 20 years, and of course this is bound to be what I'm going to say because this is what my PhD is on, um, this technology is going to move out of the film industry to the rest of society and it's going to be incredibly beneficial to the rest of society to be able to do a bunch of stuff. And there are an enormous number of areas from treating um, vets who have post-traumatic stress disorder to uh, dealing with uh, um, and exploring areas of... Uh, brain degenerative diseases that are already using technology and people that started in the film industry at places like Weta. And so I'm fiercely protective of uh, criticism against uh, those people and, uh, and our industry generally. But, you know, no one, I think, should be naive to not think that there aren't going to be bad examples of the stuff that happens. And let's face it, you know, there's a bunch of bad visual effects done in in bad films and they just aren't that good and they don't look that good and why wouldn't they be it's not as if they're all going to be perfect i mean it, there was a point when people were saying look no one's ever made a flop of a animated cg kids film every single one of them's made money and that changed quickly enough when you know we got <laughs> snail racing movies and Flushed other away. things that just you know were just like we just didn't need to have them um are there recent examples of digital humans that you think for whatever reason and i don't mean in terms of narrative now or story but whatever reason technically you'd feel like didn't work and is there anything we can learn from those there any sort of occasions where you've seen digital doubles and you've thought um uh we could learn from them by the way that point i was making earlier about the um what are you thinking about that that point i made earlier about the skin looking more plastic as things move away is a universal problem in computer graphics. It's something that ILM struggles with. It's something that everyone, whether everybody deals with still today, it's not a solved problem. And it deals and happens in a bunch of different areas throughout the industry. It's not just human faces, but it's very obvious in human faces because we're so attuned to them. So there are some, you know, full-on technical hurdles that are yet to be fully cracked. Mm -hmm. So it's it should be that we should be able to name quite a few bad cases of digital doubles. I, I'm actually willing to say that Weta's done them in um, in the Hobbit film, some of the fight sequences near the end, there was um, what I thought movement that felt too uh, too loose and not weighty enough. And that's that's me sticking my neck out because obviously Weta um, does spectacularly good work. And, uh, and as good as the work is on their digital characters in close-up in some of those fight sequences, some of the mid-range characters just felt too, uh, too light for my for my liking. What about you guys? Well, I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff with digital doubles in particular in 
all kinds of films, when you're seeing a digital double of a human character, uh, you know, at a at full screen, like at somewhat of a distance and being uh, moved by some force, whether it's a, you know, in the, like a, a, a what's her name? Uh, uh, the Naomi Watts digital double in King Kong King or something, Kong? or, you know, where, where the, the character's being asked to move in a way that, and the camera as well is maybe moving in a way that is so unrealistic that, you know, it, it sort of detracts from the possibility of it being real. And then, you know, all the issues of the physics and the gravity. I know when we, I think it was, maybe it's one I, I don't think I was on that show, but I think I it was one I listened to, uh, where you were talking about, um, I can't remember which one it was, but one of the more Spider-Man. recent Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was and going mental the... over the pendulum thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, and that, and that was a, an example of a digital double where, you know, the, the physics and the gravity and whatnot is, is wrong in such a manner that like it, it's, you know, you you know what you would expect to see, and it's so visually incorrect, you know, to your perception that it takes you out of it. I think there are many examples um, like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I could I could probably uh, sit and come up with a you know a dozen of them. Yeah, we we did a test at at PhD where we were dropping something up close, and how many frames it went through frame, and then we had the same thing, a bigger object but proportionally further away from camera, and we dropped it. And of course, it takes more frames to move um, off screen because big objects actually move slower than small ones. It's one of the ways how you perceive how something moves. And the trouble is that when you make a movie, um, a lot of these big characters in particular, and I'm not talking about people, move in such a way that just would be too fast. Like they wouldn't be able to put their leg down that quickly um, because bigger things further away move slower. Um, you know, a pen falling on my desk moves relatively faster in my visual perception than a crane falling um, off the top of a skyscraper to the ground. And even if they're, you know, if you were to photograph them and they were the same size in frame, I'd know one was big and one was small. The trouble is it can make for very boring movies to do stuff that way. And when you swing that problem over to digital humans, you get the same problem. Like you get a fight sequence or a thing with a car or somebody leaping around. And it just wouldn't be that interesting if it was solely done at speed. And you know, so even in a normal film with normal actors that have no CG people, such as in the Mad Max film that we all love to death, he's speeding up people's actions dramatically because it makes for a more interesting film. Maybe to the point that you notice it, I don't know. I noticed it, but I didn't mind it. But, um, you know, so it's because that's the thing, isn't it? Like we don't care as a general public whether the physics is right in a film. We just care if it looks good. So people are lit in an unrealistic way. They have eye lights when there is no motivation for them, but we accept it because they look better, prettier, more intelligent, whatever. Well, and it's a difference too. Like if you're talking about something like in the the, the uh, Fury Road, right, in the Mad Max film, those kinds of uh, instances of things moving in a way that maybe, you know, seems sort of unrealistic where, you know, they, they sort of speed up under crank and get that kind of really cool sort of quick sped up look. It's a it's a stylized choice, right? So it's something that's even, I think a little bit different. It, like it's, it's taking it into another arena of a certain kind of stylistic choice on the part of the filmmaker in order to create a certain visual sensibility, as opposed to, you know, maybe a different type of film where there's a, a, an attempt at a certain kind of realism. And, and, and if something doesn't work 
uh, in the context of an attempt at making something real, it sticks out more than if it's something that's stylized. Maybe that's <laughs> just sort of saying what you but, just but, said, right? But Ty, I don't know if you heard this, we were discussing it when we were talking about Mad Max, but the, the guys that are thrown off cars in Mad Max, they did sims on them and they were pretty accurate and they looked fake because when a real stuntman gets thrown off a car, he waves his arms as if he's kind of clawing at the air because that's how stuntmen have sort of developed the language of people flying off cars and making themselves look interesting. And so when they redid the digital doubles to make them look like stuntmen coming off cars and clawing at the air as they flew through the air, everyone went, oh, that looks much better. It looks much more believable. But if you actually watch footage of somebody in a car accident or some horrendous kind of, you know, whatever, they don't do that. Their arms fling out in, an, in a star shape because, you know, the forces of nature do that to you. And no one looks like a stuntman when they're actually being hit and thrown off cars, but doesn't matter. As an audience, I want to see the person with their feet kind of running in the air and their hands sort of grasping at nothing, and that is my reality. And so the the notion of reality isn't even real, that makes sense. Is that making any sense, Ty? I think that we, you've, it, it, interestingly enough, this is like we've just entered the, a topic, I think, for a whole other show, which is... <laughs> how many conventions, cinematic conventions, it's, it sort of gets back to the idea about how we perceive faces. It could stay on the theme of tonight's show, uh, is that there's a lot of stuff going on that's on a subconscious level. The cinema has its language. The language of cinema is, is something we learn as we grow and watch films. And so there's a lot of things, a lot of processing that happens at a subconscious level. Matt's point about, um, you know, oftentimes bad CG effects or bad digital characters, they're really the result of some other series of, of, of issues as opposed to just the way that the digital character is rendered or lit or whatever. It's like he's saying, you know, um, the physics is wrong or what you're talking about. But there's even another weirder piece to it is, is that sometimes things can throw you off in a movie just because the convention has shifted. I remember seeing Gladiator. I'm pretty sure it's Gladiator. And there's a shot of the you know, um, where they all fight, the, you know, the Colosseum or whatever. And it was like a helicopter shot. Um, and, I, and it pulled me out of the movie instantly. I was like, well, they didn't have helicopters back then, <laughs> you know. And so it's instantly like my brain was making this crazy, you know, convoluted assessment. Like, you know, they didn't have cameras back then either, but I was fine with that. And they're all speaking English <laughs> and I'm fine with that. And they're all, you know, there's all these things, but boy, uh, moving, you know, suddenly a helicopter shot. I was like, well, you know, they wouldn't, I, they wouldn't have used a helicopter. <laughs> so there's these weird things that, that we have that are like a series of bias or a series of non-bias or a series of assessments. It's our own cinematic understanding of cinematic language or you know thing i have a, a a friend who's really sensitive to symmetry like he can spot symmetry i think he's an artist also and um he can pick out symmetric objects like it, uh, subconsciously it's like he just sees them so he's constantly complaining about any kind of texture map where they use the same texture map multiple times in the shot he'll see it um and i always say he can't but then he really can so you know, everybody has this weird set of filters. And, and again, I think it, it keeps going back to the point, which is some at some point, the audience is just, they're going to accept it and move on. You know, just digital characters are exciting and new and interesting. And now, um, but when they're uh, everyday occurrence, I think it'll be exactly like, you know, what's the story and, you know, who's telling it and what's the ideas. And it's pretty amazing. It's pretty interesting to think about it in those bigger 
timeframes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I do think that there is hardwired. So there's some of this is learnt, as we're talking about with the cinematic language stuff. Some of it is is super hardwired brain stuff on processing faces, um, which is where we started. And your point about being able to articulate them that you made earlier, you know, like, can you even know what you, you're seeing? I wanted to ask you some examples from your own past when looking at dailies. And it doesn't have to be about digital humans, but um, I was talking to someone and um, uh, anyway, a story came up about somebody saying, oh, that face is wrong because the top teeth are moving incorrectly. You know, they need to, to, to move more. And of course, top teeth don't move. They're attached to the skull. Like they're the one thing that you can actually use to track a skull with because there's the only point that you see bone on a human face um, is the teeth, even though they're not bone, but you know what I mean? They're connected to bone. So uh, so clearly what was the, they were saying is there's something wrong about that head and they articulate it as the top teeth aren't moving up and down properly um, when that is a physical impossibility. But you must have had that in... in um, in dailies or in just reviewing work that you've done where people have come up with a point where you're going, okay, I could just embarrass them by pointing out that it's super, super stupid. And by the way, I've done that. I've actually pointed out to a client that they were super, super stupid by saying that something should be in focus, out of focus, and then in focus again, the way that a lens is, as in close to camera, in focus, in the mid ground, out of focus, and in the distance, in focus, because that's what lenses do. And I was like, yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> anyway, if you were cleverer than me, you wouldn't point out the client's stupid when they say that. And But you would be like, okay, they're seeing something, but the thing that they're articulating is absolutely guaranteed not what they're saying out loud. You must have had that, right? I, I actually have a story that <laughs> about this that's... I didn't think I would ever share it too publicly, but it, it was when I was a effects art director on um, Casper, the Friendly Ghost, the, the Steven Spielberg-produced uh, film. And um, there's a scene, and that's kind of, that was a very difficult show for a lot of people. It ran very long. It was a, it was a long, ILM shows really usually lasted between, you know, four to eight to 10 months. And I think Casper was like 18 months. It was really long. But <clears throat> there's a scene where um, Casper goes into this kind of hyperbolic chamber, some kind of sealed uh, chamber. Uh, I think it's supposed to turn him into a human boy again. And and when there's something goes haywire with it, and then the he the the the, the machine is open and Casper is melted inside, and um, for some reason uh, I was doing concept art of what the melted Casper would look like, and this had to get approved by Steven Spielberg. So he 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 looked at it and he said, no no it it, it needs to be like an egg, like a like a a, a cooked egg. So I said, okay, cool, sure, sure. And so I, I thought like, I said, I think I said something like, do you mean a sunny side up egg? And he said, yeah, yeah, like a sunny side up egg. So <clears throat> I did all this artwork of Casper melted and you know, the kind of the ball of the yolk would have been his head and then his body was this, the white kind of stretched and hanging over the chair. And I sent all the artwork and I got this response back through the producers that Steven wasn't happy with it, that it didn't look like an egg. So I did another batch and, and I got the same response back. So we finally arranged, um, uh, we had a fiber optic line that ran down to, you know, down to DreamWorks or to Steven's company at the time. And um, he, he was there and I asked him and I said, okay, so how do you, how can you describe this? He goes, it's that, it's making it, making it way too hard. It's just an egg, it's an egg. It's just a sunny side up egg. So 
after that call, Dennis was, Murin was getting frustrated that I hadn't been able to do this artwork and, and to anyone's satisfaction. So he said, look, do this. Let's get a video camera and we'll set it up and we'll fry an egg in a pan and we'll put a clock in the view and we'll make a test and we'll send a tape to Steven and he can pick like, okay, you know, <laughs> 30 seconds in or whatever. So we, I set up a camera and got some pats and pans into one of the break rooms where we had a stove and and I did the whole test. I put a big clock, like a gymnasium clock, so you could see it, and it was running off in seconds. And and we sent the tape, and he, we were on this conference call again. He goes, yes, yeah, this is it. You've got it. This is it. This is exactly it. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, like, I have no idea about what I'm missing, like what I'm not seeing. And I said, well, what is it that, what is it that you're seeing at what point? And he goes, the whole thing is right. And I go, well, what's right and he goes it looks like an egg and i realized in that second he was talking about the yolk being yellow and casper was white and he had a rule that you'd never casper was never anything but this homogenous white and suddenly stephen wanted to introduce yellow and nobody could calculate that he was going to make such an abrupt change to the rules of casper's world so i went back to the original artwork and just added yellow pencil to you know yellow Prismacolor, and he sent it, and he said, that's it, do it. So <laughs> he couldn't say yellow. I mean, it was this whole chasing around the simplest thing, which was it looks good shape-wise, but you need to make the yolk yellow. And that would have been it. We would have got it the first day. But of course, when you said, well, yeah, you were, you were embedding uh, a level of metaphor on his, uh, on his comment that, stuck with your worldview and he was being much more literal and you just had no anticipation of that literal directive huh yeah i mean this conversation took like several weeks it wasn't <laughs> just like i mean it was really stretched out and i was really frustrated because i i didn't really know what to do next and and it was because yeah it wasn't like you were fighting him you just couldn't get it actually casper was filled with lots of strange pieces like that because i don't know if you've ever really studied the film but casper both casts a shadow he's a source of illumination and he has a, a he refracts he makes the background slightly warped so you're constantly dialing these variables up and down and every single shot was kind of designed to make casper look beautiful so we really focused on um his aesthetic and there was just no color it was a rule it just you know casper was always the same kind of whitish blue it's f funny you should say that because I was doing a story talking to the lighting lead on Pixar on Inside Out and uh, I was discussing the character. And uh, so I think Inside Out's a pretty interesting film and I don't know if you've seen it, but I'm sure you've seen the, the trailer for Inside Out and you've probably seen, you know, various uh, things on it. Okay, so you've got these characters and they are uh, emotions, no problem. And then they have this really interesting property that they actually bubble around the edges. They actually have this kind of non-solidity to them, which is, again, you know, because they're emotions. I totally get that. But then you get down to the glow around them. And this is where it gets really interesting is that on one side of the character, she has a different colored glow to the other. And then she has an overall glow and she lights up the scene and doesn't have a shadow. But the characters next to her and any materials next to her are only affected by one of the three glows. <laughs> and and uh, her clothes and hair don't glow. But some of the properties of the glowing are around her body on some of the shots and it's like it's like a really interesting recipe it's worth reading the story and yet it just totally works but it works only because you've got lighting people that judged the rules in the context of this shot um having said that 
they lit her with the same basic kind of setup in every shot, um, allowing her to get darker in lit shots. Oh, sorry, less glowy in lit shots and really stand out in uh, in dark shots. Um, but yeah, it's it, these characters that exist in these worlds have uh, can have these these laws that actually are quite hard to uh, to uh, to in in uh, to get working in a shot by shot basis. And Matt, what about you? Did you have a situation where you'd articulated? I had somebody articulate to you that something was very much wrong because of this thing that you knew it to be not what was their problem, but you had to kind of decipher mm. and interpret. Well, uh, I don't know that I could think of a specific example. I could I could think of many uh, little examples, I suppose, over the course of my career, but I, I don't know if I could think of one specifically. I was trying to sort of rack my brain and see if I could come up with any interesting anecdotes. I mean, it seems like all, the, all of my most vivid memories um, of really complicated shots, um, they were almost always about really bizarre uh lighting scenarios um like one just the one that sticks out in my mind was um there's a shot in i believe it's matrix reloaded or it might be early in matrix revolutions but i i, I worked on that shot for a long time at esc and um the art director was uh, george hall who i i know you know george as well and uh and he had done this beautiful uh, color 11 by 17 image of uh, the, I think it was the Majolner, uh, or might have been a different ship, but one of the hovercraft entering the, the Zion dock environment. And so like these doors open and there's this big crane in the middle and there's this kind of light going up the crane onto this concrete dome. And then there's these sort of blue lights from the pads and then these sort of sparks and stuff and steam rising and all these different landing platforms for all these vehicles uh, in in uh, Zion. And I remember George did this gorgeous uh, 11 by 17, you know, kind of Photoshop, uh, you know, kind of image. And it, it just was fantastic. And every day in dailies, I was working on that shot for months with, uh, you know, a bunch of other people and trying to get sort of some of these preliminary looks correct and and uh, they would always bring that shot up um, in dailies, and we would look at it for because it was a really long shot too. It was over a thousand, like fifteen hundred frames or something. And um, it went from this dark environment in the tunnel, and the doors open to this really bright environment in the dock. And there was all this sort of backlight, but then there was illumination from the pads and electric arcing from the pads. And there was so there were all these different elements to try to get it to work right. And I was doing the the big. The, the comp on everything. And, um, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of individual elements. And it seemed like almost every day for months on end, we would look at that shot and then they would say, well, let's look at George's, uh, let's look at George's painting. And they'd throw up George's painting and they'd side by side George's like, you know, two dimensional concept art, which was beautiful with this, you know, 3D, everything was 3D, all these moving elements and like side by side with the painting. And I mean, it was, it was just the killer. It was like one of those things where there were so many, they, they couldn't even render all the geometry of the underside of the dock environment where there were sort of this maze of pipes and conduits and stuff. And, and I was just one of those things where I, I, I seemed like I always got handed these shots that were like these really long, super complicated shots. There was one too on um, Watchmen, 
um, at MPC in Vancouver, and it was a shot where the owl ship comes out of the, I think it's the East River. And so it, it comes out of the East River, and there's this splash, and all this water is displaced. And there's these, again, <laughs> I always get these like hovercraft with these like glowing engine kind of things on them. And there were these blue sort of flames, but um, coming out of the bottom of the ship. And there was this whole conversation about the splash. And then there was the idea of the splash of the splash and the aerating of the water from the engines. And I mean, it, and then, you know, uh, when the mist got really fine, how the mist would then start to swirl around and spin around and <laughs> just all these like incredibly complicated, like pieces and elements that took, you know, forever to get right. But it just seemed like there's so many examples I could think of in my career where oftentimes it was complicated things like that, where there were things that technically they hadn't quite been able to make work for various reasons. There was, I think on that one we were using, um, what was the company that made the, I can't even remember now, the the company that, that did all the water effects around that in 2008. Scanline? Scanline, yeah, and they and they couldn't render the scanline uh, simulation uh, in Houdini with motion blur or something, and so there were all these kind of. It, it took a long time to get it to work right, you know, and we we're doing all these different sort of motion vectors and and then rendering all these different passes of the water, like a transmission pass of what would be behind the water but distorted, and I don't know, just uh, so many things like that where it would go on and on and on, and it was like you were trying to design something that maybe there was a still image that looked correct and people kind of had an idea in their minds of what they wanted it to look like, but it, there was no physical frame of reference that could be utilized to sort of articulate the specifics of a look. And so it was, it was always sort of, um, you, you, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Yeah. I think there's more than one uh, artist who's hit their head against the wall <laughs> when being presented with impossible previews or marvelous, uh, concept art. And they're like, I want that. Um, but uh, we, we drifted a little bit from uh, digital humans, but I think it's kind of still relevant though. There's this, uh, this um, desire quite often to do the right thing, but you really are having to interpret what somebody's saying because what they might be saying isn't either how you're hearing it in, in, uh, in your case, though, or just literally that they can't articulate what they don't like, um, you know, that uh, they pointing it in sort of the wrong direction, as it were, and saying, this is the thing over here. This is it. This is the thing. And you're like, really? Because that's, that's live action. <laughs> that's the thing that we haven't touched. Um, well, that's all wrong. And then you kind of work out that there's something else that's, uh, that's throwing that out. I think there's also a slight problem in that um, you expect them to be able to articulate. And I don't know that necessarily they have always got the ability to articulate fully, uh, even just from a uh, almost a language point of view, you know, that their language is, uh, you know, I want to make the sky more, um, you know, accepting. And yeah. you're like, accepting. <laughs> what? Hmm. That's, that's an odd word. I could make it bluer. <laughs> accepting. Huh? What? Um, and those are ones that are, you know, it's really hard. But by the same token, you know, you can't put everything on uh, on them. They have to articulate what they want to every one of the departments. And, um, well, and sometimes, too, I think those kinds of challenges, the linguistic challenges, the perceptual challenges, like I think, you know, uh, oftentimes, <laughs> even though they can be the most um, sort of frustrating moments, they can also be oftentimes some of the most satisfying, too, because there is an opportunity there for a certain kind of exploration and development of uh 
of a certain of a kind of a language or a second hand or you know coming up with um, a description and a terminology um, to describe something that maybe no one's ever seen before and so you sort of develop your own lexicon um, around some of these um, complex ideas and I think that that's uh, when we talk about the digital humans and sort of those ephemeral qualities that make something you know believable or seem real or 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 not um, it's it's the same kind of thing, really. It's 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 uh, it's all a part of that kind of um, endeavor to achieve, uh, you know, a certain kind of whether it's realism or or look or aesthetic, whatever it might be. But so is that the biggest advantage of your um, track record of working with multiple directors over multiple projects? That it's just so much easier to understand what they want to have happen rather than just trying to decode the language that they're using at the moment that they're using it? Yeah, that's definitely the case. I mean, the there's also a strange, it's like a relationship, any kind of relationship, you know, you develop a certain shorthand for communication because you've had enough time to um, work uh, together that, that you know that you share at least the reference points from previous uh, conversations about previous projects that you did together. So like Del Toro, he, Del Toro is somebody who can really, um, probably more than any director I've worked with, can read my my um, rough sketches. Like I can really show him the roughest um, notation sketches and he can make like serious decisions um, you know about proceeding he'll 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 look at a, a sketch that many people will go what am I looking at is that <laughs> you know is there what is this a picture of whereas he can really see it and he'll go oh yeah that's it why don't you just go ahead and do it and then the next the first time I do it is um, it's it's the one that gets in the in the film um, but I think I've worked on six films with him now so you know everything he's seen the process i've seen his process he's seen my process he knows what my strengths are as determined by him and um uh, and then he uh, he he um you know can assess them very quickly i think though that the other piece that i know we all share but kind of is on the same topic is what happens when you've done a lot of work in any field is you bring a lot of um, understanding to the party with regards to, um, like I mentioned with Dennis, the way that he talked about vision and seeing and, you know, visual effects supervisors, they really know a lot about how they see, they can articulate what they see, they know from looking at things what they're, what they're making in decisions about. Um, and I think also, as you as you move through your career, you you get to be a much better um, listener, and you answer you ask much better questions. The Spielberg story really informed me from that point forward to look more thoroughly at the vocabulary of the other person and to think about other things other than what I'm thinking about. Um, and um, you know, it's 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 an it's an interesting development. But I think what we end up doing professionally isn't often what we say we do. Like I say, I'm a concept designer and that I design things for films, but I know that the directors who use me d like a lot more than that. They like the way I, I think, they like the way I articulate things, they like the way I ask questions, they like how I'm detail-oriented and so on and so forth. So it's an interesting um, universe, the world of filmmaking, and it all has layers and layers on, on top of 
um, the processes that we believe we're doing. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, it is uh, definitely the case that with uh, with faces and stuff that you do need to be very careful about the language that's being used both by yourself and, and others and also not articulating something that you kind of logically think you should be seeing um, versus what you're actually seeing. I find one of the greatest things with people uh, when they're learning to draw is training their eyes to actually see what they're seeing not see what the brain is interpreting what they're seeing and the obvious example is a table you know that it's got four legs that are the same and they sit evenly on the floor and so a child tends to draw an oval for the top but all four legs stop at the same point on the page because they know that on a straight line on the page would be the floor and all the legs would stop there so in perspective of course we know that all four legs stop at different points on the page if i'm so making sense to you guys but but a child just sort of mixes those two up, right? They say, okay, well, I know that the floor is flat and all the legs stop at the same point. So, But up at the top, I know that I see the top of the table and they just sort of get a, a side view and a top view muddled. And um, it's so hard when you're doing uh, face drawing. And I've done some, I was on holidays last year or four days and I was, uh, we were all doing sketches and watching the sunset and sitting around, you know, drinking and, and having a nice time and, and eating cheese and just generally you know relaxing and so a lot of us had uh, sketch pads and we we're sort of drawing things and i was drawing people's faces and i just even though i've done it many times before th you know the the ability to override my brain's desire to not see light and dark but see you know a nose and uh and those eyes because i know that they're there rather than seeing the dark shape where the eye should be but it just happens to be in full silhouette right now it's just it's excruciatingly hard to make yourself do that and i think it's even more so uh with faces and that's me drawing where i can kind of mentally abstract it to be stop looking at the person and start looking at what you're actually seeing moving people on a screen man that's hard work so i think i think that there's work to be done technically and there are physical problems and there's a lot of work to be done um in understanding human understanding but it's uh it's definitely the case that i think in these films we're getting something that's a very useful contribution to the filmmaking i mean this film genesis uh, just was more interesting for having a digital arnie at the beginning it it was a more engaging film for me in the first act and possibly the second act than it was in the third act and i think the reason for that is that uh there were some interesting things happening and different plays with my perception happening in the first act and some great Doctor Who time travel in the second act and just <laughs> basically a film I've seen before in the third act. But um, yeah, so, you know, we're going to see more of this and it's hopefully uh, a good way to go. But man, there are some bright people way above my pay grade uh, working on this problem. And it's been great having a chance to talk to you guys about this today. I can't thank you enough. So with that, um, is there any last thoughts that you want to have about either the film uh, or the, the topic of uh, Thai, of, say, digital humans in general? No, I think what I'll be thinking about tomorrow is um, just, you know, what, 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 does it, what can really be done beyond just uh, obvious stunt stuff and, you know, making people look real? I mean, what could you really do if you could use your laptop and, you know, and some future kid can, you know, do Shakespeare or something and create all the characters himself. That would be weird. I don't know. <laughs> Matt? Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, the I, the thing I keep thinking about in the larger context of the conversation, too, are uh, maybe in a more holistic way or the way in which we've seen in the last few years um, some really amazing hybridized uh 
digital humans, right? Where there's a performance element and a digital element thinking of some of the ones this summer, like the Ex Machina and the um, Furiosa uh, arm, um, but also things that we've talked about, I know before on the show, the Skinny Steve and stuff. Now those aren't the same, you know, it's not a full digital human in those uh, instances per se, but I think, um, you know, we we're seeing leaps and bounds in that kind of um, sort of augmented human performance. And then I think, uh, you know, this, this project, the digital Arnold, I thought was, was hugely successful and was, uh, just so much fun to look at and a really neat thing to be able to do, um, in the context of this franchise. So, yeah, I mean, I think every year, you know, teaching, uh, students, you know, every year there's, uh, new versions of this, that, and the other, and, uh, students, uh, glomming on to, um, explore and experiment with, you know, sort of the latest um, techniques and technologies and uh, softwares and renderers and what have you. And uh, the students who get really into it and excited about it um, are able to do things in uh, a classroom, uh, sometimes, uh, like you said, Ty, on their laptops that, um, you know, we couldn't do at ILM uh, when I first started there. So uh, I, I think it's incredibly exciting. Um, I don't know, just seeing where the state of the art is, but also seeing how that starts to um, matriculate down into, uh, you know, everybody's um, toolkit. Well, obviously, I have a huge interest in digital faces for what we teach at FX PhD, and I have uh, my personal interest actually extends to this technology in real time. So the the, the uh, thing we haven't been discussing because not relevant to this show is just all of this in a real time environment, but. Um, What's happening in gaming engines and what's happening with uh, GPUs is making this actually uh, a really, really interesting area for me. So I, I totally agree with you guys. Um, thank you so much for being with us. We discussed where you guys are located geographically at the beginning of the show, but uh, maybe some links to where people can follow you uh, in the virtual space would be appropriate. Matt, uh, do you want to give me your uh, handle or your feed or whatever? Yeah, I'm uh, on uh, the, the Twitters and Facebook. I'm Matt Wallen. M-A-T-T-W-A-L-L-I-N. And I have a website that uh, reasonably often gets updated. Um, and that's mattwallen.com. And Ty? Well, I have a website that never gets updated. And people are Excellent. welcome to check it out if they want to see work that's 15 years old. That's uh, alieninsect.com. But uh, I'm very active on Facebook. Uh, have a lot of great um, uh, collection of people that that are sharing all the time on technology and the future. And uh, so, just look for Ty Ruben Ellingson on Facebook, and you will find me. There's just one. Excellent. And of course, I'm on a website that's updated almost daily. Uh, FX Guide and. Um, <laughs> Mike Seymour on the Twitters. Guys, thanks so much for uh, taking time to talk. We, uh, we really, really appreciate it. Always. And, uh, and guys, thank you so much for listening to us for these last 200 shows. The show originally started out without me and uh, we took it over. Um, so thanks to Alex and, uh, and the original team that uh, put it together. But uh, thanks also for you guys uh, for supporting us. We get a lot of uh, comments, a lot of people at facilities listen to the show in particular. And I'm always uh, really enthusiastic when I go to facilities. And uh, in fact, I once walked up on an artist who was listening to a, a VFX show, tapped him on the shoulder to say hi, and he just uh, literally jumped out of his chair. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like I'm your, your head, in my headphones and now you're here. Uh, they freaked out. Actually, I was at another facility. I went back at, uh, I think I can say this. I went back. Uh, I was allowed to uh, at a 
reason to be um, at a very off-limits area at one of the major effects houses. And uh, literally, I walked in and people were like just clamoring, saying, are you allowed to be here? Kind of half masking their monitors with confidential footage. And I'm like, no, no, really, I'm, I'm okay. And they're like, ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But anyway, yes. So it's great you guys uh, communicate with us. And a really good opportunity for you to communicate with us will be at SIDGRAPH. Um, the FX Guide crew will be uh, at SIDGRAPH this year. And um, I'm probably going to be doing a couple of panels like I did last year. And uh, we'll also just be there. So if you do see us, uh, John or myself or any of the uh, FX Guide crew at uh, SIDGRAPH, please come over and say hello. We always enjoy it. Unless we happen to have a camera pointed at us somewhere in the middle of an interview, we'd love to stop and, uh, and say hi. We really, really would. Are you guys going to SIDGRAPH at all? Or are you... Uh, Not me no, this no, I, year. I, yeah, I, I normally go, but this year I uh, I had a another event that um, uh, a friend of mine who is an artist uh, has a, a big opening in New York City of sculpture work. So I'm, I'm I, that I helped sort of do some work for. So I'm going to that instead this year. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm sure that'll be good. But nevertheless, I I do enjoy uh, my SIGGRAPH, especially for the uh, ability to refresh the uh, sort of intellectual. Uh, um, curiosities that SIGGRAPH always throw up. Some really, really good papers and some really good papers on uh, digital humans and some of the spec um, and a fine detailed uh, texture work that we were alluding to earlier. And we're going to be posting some more stories about that at FX Guide. Also, I want to flag the fact that the day before SIGGRAPH um, is DigiPro, which is on the Saturday. Uh, DigiPro will sell out. It always does. Um, it's very much our kind of a show. If you're listening to this show and you go to SIGGRAPH, um, check out that. It's a uh, basically production-focused um, visual effects work. Um, and it's a smaller show. It's packed with uh, TDs and researchers, and I've always found it really good. So it's like a fourth year that it's been on. We've been an industry partner from day one, and uh, so I'll definitely be there. And if you're there, please, please say hello. Until then, thank you for 200 episodes of The VFX Show, and uh, special thanks, of course, to the crew that uh, put this together. Um, Todd is our uh, producer. Todd... Um, Shulton has been working very hard for many years putting stuff together behind the scenes, including uh, dossiers and stuff to help us look clever uh, up front. I want to thank all of the other guys uh, like David in the Chicago office and uh, Jim here in, who do uh, editing for us, um, Ian who helps organize the show. And as I said, most particularly uh, you guys for listening. So if you didn't listen, we wouldn't do the show. So thank you so much. Until next time, I'm Mark Simmel. See questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.